I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is clinical forensic psychologist and chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, Dr. John Huber. Uh, We're going to be talking about mental health during COVID-19. Government and public health officials in the United States have begun discussing when to reopen society. But as social distancing directives persist and school and business shutdowns wear on, Americans indicate that their mental health will suffer before their physical or financial health does. In a recent Gallup poll, 68% of Americans said they can continue following social distancing guidelines for as long as necessary before their physical health suffers. But fewer, 48%, say their mental health will hold out as long. They don't think it will hold out as long. Dr. John Huber offers strategies for bolstering our mental health during the global pandemic. He's been featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, and is the host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio, which is heard nationwide and features interviews with today's top mental health professionals. Welcome to the show. Uh, John, nice to have you here. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Well, I guess as I indicated in the opening, you've had a lot of experience bolstering people's mental health, but I'm assuming that this is probably a whole new chapter uh, in bolstering people's mental health, the whole uncharted territory, I guess is what I would say. Um, Maybe you can respond to that. (laughs) I think you're exactly right. It is kind of a uh, a new area, you know, uh, we, we talk about, and as a forensic psychologist, I work with, you know, prison inmates who are detained, but usually that's because they've done something, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, America has just been essentially put on house arrest, and a lot of people are, are struggling with that because, you know, what did I do? What did we do to deserve this? Nobody did anything to deserve this. It's not about that, but, you know, you start sitting there, and, and initially you can rationalize. You know, this is for society's health. This is a good thing. But after a while, you sit there and you're doing the exact behaviors that we tell people who are depressed or having mood disorders to not do. We tell them to get out of their house. We tell them not to withdraw from society. But they're, you know, these behaviors are exactly what we're being asked to do. And it, it's interesting, and, and you know as a social worker that you know, your behavior oftentimes shapes your thoughts and your mood, just like your mood or your thoughts can also change your mood and your behavior. So we're kind of acting like in, in some ways that like we have a mood disorder, like we do have depression, and we're starting to follow that behavior. Our brain is starting to follow that behavior, and we're, we're not going outside. You know, sunlight is very important. It, it's important for a lot of reasons. For the virus, we know that vitamin D is essential for your immune system to be able to fight off viruses in general, and sunlight on your skin produces vitamin D. So we need that, but the waste products from the production actually pass through your blood-brain barrier and go into your central nervous system where your brain uses them to make our essential neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine, oxytocin, uh, dopamine. And that actually is very important for our production of those neurotransmitters. Without those waste products from vitamin D being made by your body, your brain doesn't have anything to make those neurotransmitters with. So, you know, 
cloistering inside, staying out of the sunlight, staying, you know, in that environment kind of makes an artificial seasonal affective disorder by, by blocking all that off. And we've got two things now. We've got behavior that is leading the way for our mental health and saying, hey, maybe, maybe we are depressed. And then we're lacking the neurotransmitters we need because our brain doesn't have access to the material as easily to produce those neurotransmitters. So what? we're setting the whole nation up for depression, basically. So that's not good news. <laughs> uh, how do what, what do we do? I mean, how, what what can we do? I guess. I mean, is there an answer to it? I mean, I you know, and different people have different sets of circumstances as you're right. describing it. I mean, I live in New York City and Albany, New York, and now I'm in Albany, New York. I go back and forth. I haven't gone back and forth in three months, but it's very different being here in the suburbs than it was being in an apartment in the city. I do go out. I do walk four miles and I'm not near people and I can do the social distancing and all of those kinds of things. So it presents a different set of circumstances for people, whether they're in rural communities or in cities or in apartments or in houses. So we are all in similar, obviously we have to, we're, yeah, but not exactly the same, I guess. Maybe you can address some of well, those exactly. issues. Well, yeah. exactly, and we are we are in, in, in similar situations, but there are nuances within that in different varying degrees. You know, I, I have friends who live out on, on farms and ranches, and, you know, they're going about their business because there's no other people around, and they got to take care of the cattle and, you know, and goats and everything, and so they're out there running around, and they're doing great, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we also know people in rural communities that because they are immune compromised, maybe they have an organ transplant or they've had a heart attack or, or they're fighting cancer, you know, that they are sheltering in place just like we would if we were in, in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is very individualized, but we still as a society are all suffering and, and working within those boundaries. And so some of the best things to do is exactly what you said. Get up and go for a walk. You know, get outside, you know, put your jacket on, get some sunlight, social distance when you see other people, and be active. You know, the other thing I recommend to people is get into a pattern of routine. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit. So, you know, set your alarm, get up at the same time every morning. Go to bed at the same time. Try to eat at the same times during the day. Those types of things, you know, we're not being moderated time-wise because of most people aren't going to work. So, that, you know, usually you have work that demands that you're in a certain place at a certain time, and then you get off work and you can go and have your free time then. Well, that's not happening because a lot of America, again, they're, they're sheltering in place. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's hard to then put those time limits and time constraints on yourself. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the rock band that finally makes it big. You know, they've been playing every, every night and playing dive bars and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, they have a gold album and, you know, they're, they're playing, you know, two shows a week. And the rest of the time, well, now they got money and you know, and they're out partying and drinking and they don't have a bedtime and they don't have to get up. All they have to do is be on stage twice a week. And, uh, and that's why we end up losing a lot of people because they, they don't have those constraints. And a lot of our 
rock stars and, and people who hit it big are overwhelmed with tons of money and tons of time to do whatever they want to do, and uh, they, they lose control. And it, it's interesting, you know, as, as an adult now, you know, watching the people that I used to listen to in music and now they're mature adults and they, put the, they impose their own time restrictions on themselves. Whereas when I watched them when they were first starting out, how all you saw was them getting in trouble in bars and starting fights and drinking and doing, you know, busted for drugs and all this kind of stuff. But as they mature, they realize, hey, I can't live like that. And they impose those time restraints on themselves. We need to do that as a society. That will help. That but then that you. okay, and I want to also kind of break that down too, because there are nuances in the way people live. I mean, what do you say to yes, let's say if you're a couple, uh, it's two people living together or one person living alone, that's much easier to do. What about if you're a mom, a single mom, or even a, a, a single dad or a sing, two partners, whatever, with two kids? And the kids are up in the middle of the night and people and they're fighting and, you know, all the stuff the kids do. And yet there's no outlet for that and very Absolutely. difficult to establish a routine because kids aren't routinized. That's and particularly when they're not going to school, which takes oh, away yeah. that. Yeah. So well, that's another set of guys who aren't going to school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we struggled with that. We've had to, we've had to struggle with that. You know, I've got one who's supposed to graduate in a couple of weeks and, you know, he's upset because, Hey, he's never going to see most of his friends again because, you know, they, they all have plans to go off to college and all this kind of stuff. And they didn't have the last, you know, two and a half, three months to say their goodbyes. And, uh, so he's doing a lot of stuff online and sometimes it's late at night and, you know, we try to come in and we give them our, our own time constraints. So we give him, you know, it's like, okay, well, we know he was up till three. Well, he's up at noon, whether he wants to be or not, you know, uh-huh. and that's because <laughs> so he is, he is a kid and he, and he is yeah. struggling with that. And, uh, you know, and then we have him, you know, in, in their room by a certain time at night. Now, you and I both know with digital media, that doesn't mean they're going to bed. We understand that. But uh, we also know that when we impose these time constraints on him, that he does much better and he handles things much better, even though he's like, why do I have to be up? I don't have, yeah. you know, nothing's going on. And, and then I've got a, a freshman in high school who is, you know, she just loves her digital media, whether it's YouTube or podcasts and things like that. And, you know, she, she goes through and does her, her binge watching and binge listening. And, you know, then she's up the next morning ready to go. Of course, last night she was up binge watching and, uh, she still hasn't got up yet this morning. <laughs> we do the <laughs> but same thing those with are, her. That's we, pretty typical of high school kids. I mean, as you're describing yeah. them, at least, yeah, my kids were yeah. always, and I was that way too, as a matter of fact. But, uh, exactly. uh, yeah. Yeah, so we, we, we don't let them, you know, we've had this conversation with some of the other parents and stuff like that. You know, well, we know they don't, they don't even get active until like 7 o'clock at night. And I'm like, no, you know, we, we get them up at, at noon, no later, and sometimes, like yesterday morning, uh, my, my son was up at seven seven fifteen, you know, in the morning. After, you know, and he went up and uh, he he actually got some work. He does some work um, for a couple of different people that are considered essential. One of them is a, a pharmacy. He's able to to do some stocking and stuff like that for a pharmacy. And 
the other one is um, a detail shop, you know, and he goes out and social distance, you know, gets away from everybody, but they, they detail vehicles. And, uh, you know, it's not everyday kind of thing, but when he has it, man, he's up and out the door because he doesn't want to be in the middle of the heat, you know, out in the sun doing that. So, so he has those things. It gives him a little spending cash and gives him some meaning. And that's, that's where I'm kind of going for this whole conversation. We got, we got people who are losing their sense of self-worth because they're not working and they're worried about paying their rent. They're worried about losing their business and some cases that they've had for decades and, you know, sitting in isolation or sitting isolated with your family, you, you sit there and you see everything you built potentially going away. And it's really hard. People are losing their sense of self-worth, not their self-esteem, not their pride, but wait a minute, everything I've created is very fragile. Is it really, you know, did I really produce something good here? So, again, having that routine helps maintain some sort of, of motivating factors in your life. Okay, well, I'm going to bed at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock tonight no matter what. So if I'm going to you know, read that book, I better pull it off the shelf now. And, uh, you know, it's not the best thing in the world. You know, it, it, it doesn't satisfy all those needs, but having those routines help keep you in that in that point of view that, you know, I do have some control in my life and when this thing is gone, I can continue on and be, be the person that I've been. Well, you know, when you say this thing is gone, I'm going to, do you think this, is it ever really going to be gone? Well, is the flu ever gone, you know, and, and that's, that's where I think, you know, once we have some, you know, community immunity, that's, that's probably more like what it's going to be like, you know, and if you're debilitated, if you have immune deficiencies, the flu is lethal as well. And, and people aren't realizing that. I know at least here in Texas, the majority of new cases now are not happening in the general population, even though we've, we've started lifting the quarantine where it's happening are in institutions like nursing homes, in prisons, in rehab facilities where people are cloistered together and they've got immune deficiencies. You know, you get those two less than, less than 5% of the, the COVID-19 cases right now in Texas are in the general population that are out and about moving around. So, you know, I, I have a belief that, that once we get through all this and, and we have to remember that sheltering in place doesn't stop you from getting infected. It slows down the rate of the infection so we don't overwhelm our medical system. And that's one of the things we're trying to do is not overwhelm that. And, you know, instead of maybe this hitting the country and in five months everybody who's going to get infected gets hit, this is, could potentially stretch out, you know, 12, 14, 18 months uh, in, in, in spreading around until we've established a baseline of uh, immunity levels. And, uh, you know, it's... You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at the hospital today. I have privileges at a couple of hospitals, and, you know, they go in there, and they take my temperature and all that kind of stuff, and then we, we go and uh, you know, see our patients, and we protect ourselves and protect them, and, uh, you know, it, just like we do every day at the hospital. I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we deal with tuberculosis. We deal with all sites, sorts of communicable diseases and things like that at the hospital, and, you know, 
I, I protect myself. The other doctors and nursing staff, we all protect ourselves. Occasionally somebody gets exposed to something and we have to monitor them. But it's very rare, actually, when you think about how often we come in contact with those individuals. And some of it is we have built up an immunity or we've had vaccines and things like that. And uh, we also use common sense. If it's a really, really contagious thing, we put on our little bunny suits and our masks and ventilators and goggles and, you know, go in there that way. And most of the time we're wearing the little the, the face mask to keep from potentially infecting our patients with something we brought from the outside world, not us from the patient. What about the, uh, which I guess it's been now a couple weeks, the discovery that children who they said perhaps were immune from it, even though they may be little vectors of carrying the, dis- the disease, um, which is kind of in, in New York City, I guess every day the numbers go up in terms of the cases that have been, that they have, that that they know about, uh, I think it's up to 100 cases of, of children who have uh, COVID-related Kawasaki illness. Um, it seems to me that that's like always the tip of the iceberg. Uh, if there are 100 cases in New York City, there are probably thousands in New York City and around the country. So that opens up a whole new door to this pandemic, doesn't it? Yes, but, you know, I sit back and think, oh, you know, maybe that that was wishful thinking that kids weren't going to be able to to transmit as well. You know, part of of the thing is, you know, kids are always catching everything before everybody else. Why? Because they're down in the trenches, so to speak, and literally, you know, playing in the dirt and shoulder to shoulder with their peers. And if one person gets it, all of a sudden everybody in the class does. It's just like, it's just like, you know... (laughs) When, when my kids were in elementary school and one of the kids in their grade would get get lice and all of a sudden we get these letters, start going through your kids, making sure there's no lice and tell them not to share hats. And I remember that. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And it's the same kind of thing. And I think it's kind of, you know, we're all biological animals, you know, so, so to say that kids aren't going to get infected by it, I think was, was ridiculous in the first place. And, and the doctors I work with, you know, were like, yeah, it, they're going to get it. It's just, to what extent does the disease manifest itself? And again, if you've got kids that are immune compromised, they're just as threatened as the elderly who are immune compromised, you know? And, and as we watch that, we see what, what are the big things, you know, it's, it's age, obesity, and uh, then, then we got the, the immune compromised issue there. And what happens when you're obese? Well, you know, you don't, your body doesn't work as well. It doesn't function as well. And you're immune compromised. What causes obesity for a lot of people? It's alcoholism or emotional disturbance. They're eating their, their emotions. Uh, it could be diabetes, a lot of things, kidney disease, all these different things that are not only, you know, causing weight gain, but they are immune compromising. They, they cause a deficit in your biology and uh, so it, it makes sense that those things are there. So, you know, it, it's nothing unexpected. And uh, what, what we've got to do, though, again, is because this is, you know, they call it novel at first. It was novel because humans hadn't experienced it. Now we know it's in, what, 178 countries around the world. I wager to say in three years it will be more studied than polio. 
um, every every one of those 170 some odd countries are going to be asking their universities to do research and find out for for themselves what really is going on and went on and what is this virus about. So we're gonna we're gonna see and know more about this than than probably you know in a faster time even than what we found out about HIV and all those types of diseases like that because. You know, HIV didn't didn't shut down the economy of the planet. This did. So, yeah, so, right. And you know, it, well, that was the other thing I was going to say. This is, it, it didn't. HIV was actually it was different, right? We knew how it was right, transmitted. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, transmitted in a very different way, and this has shut down the entire. That's another piece to it. I think that it's it's global. It affects everyone. There's something about that that that's um, from a psychological or emotional, at least. For me, I think, and people that I've spoken to, it's it's a very, and weird isn't exactly, a, you know, weird describes <laughs> the, it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Fear, um, fear is it, and what are we afraid of? The unknown. Yeah. And like I said, in about three years, we'll be sitting there and we'll have a lot different perspective on COVID-19. And, uh, you know, one of my doctor friends says, well, that'll teach us we shouldn't be eating bats. You know, it's like, well, most of us don't eat bats anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But <laughs> uh, hopefully, most of us don't. I mean, yes, we don't eat bats. Actually, yeah, yep. I I was in China in two thousand and one. Actually, two weeks after nine eleven, and uh-huh. uh, everyone was afraid to travel. And I said, "Well, we might as well go." I don't think there's going to be something happening two weeks later, so we might as well. It already happened. Let's go to China. Right. But and maybe you've been there as well. I don't know. But just looking, and going into one of those wet markets, it was it, it was even frightening then. Um, yes. It was very. It, it it felt unhealthy. It just you know. Um, and I, I can just I can still picture. Uh, you know, we were in Wuhan, but um, yeah, so. Well, you know, and, and that that's a little bit different, too. You know, our society, we, we talk about hygiene all the time. And, you know, we found out that maybe we're not, you know, it, it's funny. You know, we, we talked about in 1980 about by 2020 we'll be all driving flying cars and what we're doing is teaching people how to wash their hands in 2020. Yeah. And, you know, you thought that, you know, because of our hygiene and our, our codes and towns for restaurants and food prep and all this kind of stuff that, we would be much better at this and we're not. And I think that that's a reality that, that hits, you know, that, that, Hey, you know, we, we don't need to just talk about it. We have to do it, you know, and knowing human behavior, when they finally say this is finished, you know, the odds are that three to four months afterwards, we're going to slip right back into the same behaviors we were doing before. And, you know, I, I'm a stickler at my house because you know I go to the hospital and I'm washing my hands in and out of every patient's uh, room and, uh, but my kids and everybody, they know you wash your hands in my house. You know, that's just, you know, you walk in the door, you go wash your hands and you're going to get a drink, go wash your hands before you get ice out, you know, go, that's just, the, that's just the rule here. And it's unspoken. And then we have family members who come visit and they don't do those things. And it's like my whole, my, my, my nuclear family, it's like their jaws, but what you just got ice without washing your hands. What's your problem? You know? <laughs> And but it's partially because of what I do for a living and where I practice, and you know I I just carry that home with me. Most people, you know, 
They don't work in environments like that. They don't have to worry about infections every day until now. And we're doing it because we don't understand enough about this virus yet. So the whole community is doing it. And again, when that drops away and we go back to, you know, being America and uh, moving forward with our, our jobs and our families and dating and relationships all over again, it's going to uh, not take very long for us to kind of slack as a society. Well, I'm going to throw something in there. I have three small grand, two a set of twins, two-year-olds and a four-year-old, and they're living in my house now. And one of the things they're programming these kids, if you these little these children shows, the four-year-old, uh-huh. they have every show is a song of wash, wash, wash your hands. So at least we're starting with that generation and, and getting them to be aware of they have to wash their hands and follow these right. these yeah public health kinds of things and they're doing it very you know even babies two year olds four year olds um, yeah so that's a good thing but I just want to go but we don't have that much time left but you know we're not really a healthy we're talking about obesity and underlying <laughs> conditions and being overweight and type two diabetes and that includes a lot of young people people absolutely so we are really to begin with, I don't think a really healthy society because we have a lot of drugs and medications that keep us alive and keep us healthy with those underlying conditions, even when we're young, 20s, 30s, 40s. So we are pretty vulnerable. I I mean, at least it's because of those kinds of, you know, because of obesity, because of all these, and we, what, three quarters of Americans are overweight? Um, I think that's the statistic. Um, and we're yeah. not even supposed to talk about that, but, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. we have, well, and, and you are correct. I mean, we, we slowed Darwin down and, uh, you know, we, we can, we can do dialysis when your kidneys fail and keep you alive and things like that. Uh, it, it, we can't stop it. We can just slow it down. So we have created an, an environment that is rich for, mortality of, of disease like this and uh, you know if everybody was fit and healthy and, and early 20s and running three miles a day and lifting weights every other day and you know eating healthy and fresh farm produce right off the right off the ranch you know we would all be much more resistant to this uh, but go back to you know 1918 and the Spanish flu when, you know, we had very little Two minutes obesity left. in this country. And we, and, had, what, uh, we yeah. had very little obesity in the country at that point, and yet yeah. how many millions are actually killed. And, uh, you know, and then go back to, what, what was it, uh, during Woodstock, we had the Hong Kong flu. 400,000 yeah. people went to Woodstock, New York, and, you know, you didn't have a pandemic there, and you didn't have an epidemic of all those people dying from the Hong Kong flu. You know, it was a different time. And, you know, of course, we had m- many fewer Americans at that point. You know, it was maybe, what, 40, 40 million versus the 330 we have now. So our density has changed a lot also. And that's what we have to remember. You know, you talked about going to Wuhan. Wuhan's a small town in in China with 18 million people. Yeah, so, and there are lots of them, I know. <laughs> or you go yeah, to towns absolutely. in China with 30 million people, which is just an average-sized town, 30 million right. people, right? 
we have to say goodbye. This was a, gr- a great conversation with you. <laughs> I just. <laughs> um, how about a website? Your website you can go to my website, and you can follow just about everything we do from the main website, all our social media, and it's mainstreammentalhealth.org. Or if you have a hard time remembering that, go to drpsycho.org. D r p s y c h o dot org. Great, Dr. John Huber. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. It was a stay pleasure. Stay healthy and stay safe. Wash and your stay hands. Sane. <laughs> what? And wash your hands. <laughs> and wash your hands. Wash your hands. I do. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. 